we realize that we will never be able to go back to life pre-COVID-19. We have to live with this risk. Privacy is a very important human right, but it is not an absolute right. Have you sacrificed calls to improve human rights in order to keep the dialogue going? Well, you keep saying concern. We're not concerned. South Korea has been hailed as a model country in bringing its coronavirus infection rate under control. But the methods have raised privacy and public shaming concerns. And now there are reports that the virus is back again. My guest this week is South Korean Foreign Minister Kang Kyung-wha. Has her government made too many compromises on citizens' privacy in its efforts to contain the pandemic? And how could the public health crisis impact diplomacy in the region and beyond, especially with its nuclear neighbor to the north? Foreign Minister Kang Kyung-wha, welcome to Conflict Zone. Thank you for having me. Your country has reported a flare-up in coronavirus cases this week around the capital at a number of nightclubs, which authorities are now temporarily closing. President Moon has warned a second wave mm -hmm. is coming, whether now or in the future. This at a time when you were just starting to ease some pandemic restrictions. How concerned is your government mm -hmm. over the threat of a second outbreak? Very concerned, uh, but we have been guarding against this possibility. This virus is very tricky. It's, it spreads very, caref uh, very fast, and uh, it spreads silently. Um, asymptomatic people can be, can be contagious. So we've been guarding against this possibility. It's very unfortunate that this has happened, but our system is now fully up and running to trace uh, to test and, of course, to treat uh, the confirmed patients. Uh, this is a population that we have been concerned about all along. Um, you know, young people, nighttime clubs where lots of people gather and evidently uh, where the sanitary rules were not strictly abided by. Um, they were instructed to keep a close list of all the visitors um, to take all precautions, but it turns out that these measures weren't uh, adhered to. And now we are dealing with a huge population that need to be traced and tested. So given that, I mean, you initially managed to come to grips with the pandemic through uh, without any extensive lockdowns, mm -hmm. we have to see, which we saw elsewhere. Mm -hmm. You said in a recent interview that you didn't think mm -hmm. the idea of a lockdown or a blockade would be acceptable to your public, mm -hmm. um, that this idea mm -hmm. of a mandatory blockade mm -hmm. would really be contradic contradictory to the principle of openness. Do you think that you might have to rethink that mm -hmm. policy in the face of the second wave? Well, I think this, the measures that we have taken in the, in the immediate aftermath of this outbreak is closure of these uh, entertainment facilities. And these are by city administrative decree here in Seoul and in other big cities as well. So it is a temporary shutdown of these entertainment establishments. It is not a wholesale uh, lockdown of businesses, and I don't think we will ever get to that point. Uh, we are racing against time in, in tracking down all the close contacts of people who have been to these establishments during this particular period, which was a long holiday, uh, just before we were hoping to go to an, in an easier form of social distancing and we have gone into that for the rest of society, what that we call distancing in everyday life. And this is 
this means that we're, we, we realize that we will never be able to go back to life pre-COVID-19. We have to live with this risk and, and be prepared uh, when it raises its uh, head again. Obviously, this time it has raised its head in big numbers, but I think we are prepared and uh, we, are, we are doing our very best to contain this outbreak. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the, the measures that your public is also living with. Um, the recent flare-up in cases, it's further highlighted some glaring privacy issues with the track and trace methods that you're mm -hmm. using to contain the pandemic. Enough details are being released to the public where people's whereabouts, their identities are being revealed. And I'd like to bring up this example because it's been reported that one of the recent coronavirus cases was a man who attended clubs in Seoul's gay district. Now, rights groups fear that, you know, efforts are, are going to be made to forcibly out gay people who came in contact with him. Does it highlight a major failure in privacy protections? I think the issue of privacy has been taken out of uh, context. Uh, the issue of privacy is with certainly the patients, and I think we do this by law. Privacy is a very important human right, but it is not an absolute right. I think the ICCPR makes this very clear that it can be restricted, but it has to be restricted in accordance with the law. We have a very robust legal system in place where it's clearly identified as to where these rights might be restricted. And when you balance the privacy of the patients against the public's need to be protected from this risk, I think the answer is very clear. So the so, problem is, so it's okay you don't for do you arbitrarily, you do it by law. It's okay for you that some social media users, they've already posted video footage of some of the gay bars and clubs urging followers for donations to, quote, help put a stop to these disgusting going-ons. That's an acceptable practice? It is not okay. It is not okay. I think discrimination, prejudice against uh, people for who they are is unacceptable for a country that is... Uh, committed on the fundamental values of human rights that undergirds our democracy. It is not acceptable. But I think we, you know, this is what the government is guarding against, that you know, we, this, we don't have a consensus on the rights of the sexual minorities and people with various gender identities. We don't have a consensus. We acknowledge that. But the changes take over, you know, take time, and I think pushing for changes too prematurely can create a backlash that is even more harmful. But here we are, we are faced with the challenge, and the government response is very careful about not aggravating those existing prejudices. And we're hoping that through this experience, uh, we will dispel a lot of the prejudice and discrimination that uh, uh, the sexual minorities are faced with. Going to clubs is not just uh, people with uh, different sexual identities. It's everybody going to these clubs. But so we're tracking down everybody that have uh, been involved in the club activities during this holiday time. But it's, it's not just clubs. It's not just LGBT communities. I mean, I'd like to just ask you about the, the environment that this is creating in your society, because a recent study found that citizens are more afraid of being socially shamed for example, for having or spreading the virus than they are of the disease itself. So what does that say about the environment that these measures have created in society right now? I think our measures have been open, uh, more open than many of the measures that other societies have taken. 
obviously in the situation of crisis, people have um, stress issues to deal with. There is a psychological element that uh, this crisis has created that all societies have, have uh, to face. We are f trying to face that with the best of our expertise in, in terms of the psychological counseling that we provide to our citizens and anybody who is in need. Uh, we have a system, obviously, uh, that may not be enough. But I think we have, we have a system and we are dealing with it. And I think it, this is a challenge not just for us, but for all countries. And I think the, the, this, the COVID-19 uh, has also made clear that, you know, there are, there are hidden spots, blind spots in society that are revealed when a crisis comes along like this. You know, the, the, we have some of our uh, dark spots as well. For example, and you'll address we have those? something like 400,000. Yes, yes, we are. You know, and this is not just governments' efforts alone, because there is a limitation as to how far uh, the government's efforts can reach. We enlist a great deal of support from our civil society groups, who are helping, for example, undocumented uh, workers, who are helping uh, the uh, sexual minority groups as well. We are enlisting their help so that uh, people can come forward feeling safe to undergo testing and treatment. Okay. So we, we talked about democratic values. We talked about you know, the balance between privacy and public health, as you've articulated there. Um, I'd like to speak now about the dictatorship to the north. First of all, in the past weeks, a lot of speculation about leader Kim Jong-un's health recently. Your intelligence has said that there were no signs that he had surgery. How sick was he, or, or is he? Well, you know, our intelligence is robust, uh, and we share and analyze a great deal together with our ally, the United States. And all indications we have is that there is no unusual activity, whether it's, it's his health or are, or are the society as a whole. Obviously, there's a limitation because it's a closed uh, society and information is very difficult to garner. But to the extent that we know, there, you know, we don't detect any unusual developments. It's a closed society that your administration has been has been making um, major efforts to crack open. Since President Moon took office in 2017, your government has stressed improving ties with the North in the hopes of promoting peace on the peninsula. Um, but but you've been criticized over not putting human rights high enough up on the agenda. For example, you dropped the traditional co-sponsoring of a resolution condemning North Korea's horrific rights record at the UN General Assembly this past fall. President Moon also did not bring up human rights in a meeting with Kim Jong-un last year. Have you sacrificed calls to improve human rights in order to keep the dialogue going? I think keeping the dialogue going is extremely important if we are going to find a peaceful resolution with the North Korean nuclear and missiles issue and, and getting us on track towards creating lasting peace on the Korean Peninsula. Human rights is a very big issue when it comes to North Korea and we support the international efforts, the UN efforts in this regard. Obviously to keep the engagement going we have to balance everything and it's a decision uh, given all the consideration, uh, the, the, the judgments that we make. We do not, it's not that we don't consider a human rights issue uh, of North Korea any less, 
but the in the tactics and the strategy in promoting the engagement with North Korea has to weigh all factors and proceed. But there's a critical mass of criticism, and I'd just like to highlight a couple of them, um, because the United Nations uh, Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in North Korea has said the following. Integrating fundamental human rights into the current negotiations is crucial, crucial, for the sustainability of any agreement for denuclearization and peace on the Korean Peninsula and beyond. Can you really wait to talk tough on human rights with North Korea? I mean, doesn't that undermine uh, the legitimacy of your efforts? I don't think so. I think human rights has a place, and I think the human rights me mechanisms of the United States, uh, the United Nations, plays a very important role in keeping the engagement on that track. But there's a, another track to engagement with North Korea, which is the peace and security track. And at some point, they have to come together. But at this time, we our judgment is that uh, the the security track has to take precedence. You've also been heavily criticized as you are prioritizing that security track um, uh, of turning a blind eye in another way. Um, back in November, your country deported two fishermen accused of murder back to North Korea. Um, the UN, again, expressing deep concern um, that, quote, the decision was made potentially without due process and that the two men are at risk of serious human rights violations upon return. And, and they just highlight a couple, including enforced disappearance, arbitrary execution, torture, ill treatment, trials that do not conform to international fair trial standards. Um, they say that your government could have failed to uphold international human rights obligations itself. Do you regret that deportation decision? No, not at all. I think uh, we made the best decision under the circumstances. And given that there was no genuineness to the two men's um, desire to uh, come to this part of the peninsula, uh, and given that How did you determine they themselves that? have... Um, well, there's a we have a we have a process um, run by our national security uh, office, um, and all the ministries are involved. And the collective decision was that they pose a danger to our society, and that so therefore the decision was made. Doesn't it really come down to the fact that you're afraid that any position that you that you take on human rights will simply blow up talks with the North? We are not afraid. We are. We are um, very actively seeking the engagement, uh, taking all elements into consideration. But I think even the uh, human rights mechanisms would say that it is very important to keep that engagement going. Okay. Um I'd also like to talk about the circumstances currently in the North. I mean, we, we, we highlighted a number of the dire circumstances um, when it came to the case of those two fishermen. Um, we also have signs of deterioration there. The country has had a poor harvest season. Now with coronavirus, there are destabilizing factors, both economically, potentially on the health front as well. Um, how concerned are you that the North, with its strongman policy, will lash out and deflect from the interior issues that it has in the country? Well, we watch very carefully. I, I think, you know, the official position is that there is no case of coronavirus, uh, but they report to the WHO of 
quarantining people and, and testing. Um, so we take uh, their official position with a, a lot of grain of salt. Uh, the health structure there is extremely weak. We have offered to collaborate on this front. We have not received a response yet, but I would be um, cautious as to make sweeping judgments about what the situation there um, overall is. But are you preparing for the potential of increased provocations? Well, they have provoked. There has been a series of short uh, range launches and uh, you know these are certainly unhelpful and we have urged them to stop this uh, at a time when the whole world is are trying to come to grips with this um, this very unprecedented health crisis but so we we watch very carefully and we we are prepared and I think uh, based upon our very robust uh, defense posture and and readiness based upon our um, strong U.S. ROK Security Alliance. Let's talk a little bit more about that alliance and your readiness to, to face any potential threat from the North. Um, you've mentioned that they've already provoked. Um, you have actually been trimming back on some joint military exercises in an effort to engage the Kim regime in dialogue. Um, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace has said the following about that pairing back. Canceling crucial exercises detracts from Seoul's very ability to manage the threatening neighbor it has been engaging with by downgrading South Korea's military readiness and compromising its ability to conduct operations with U.S. forces. Aren't you concerned that you might not be ready if Kim lashes out? I have full confidence in our military authorities in collaboration with the U.S. military authorities to keep up that robust preparedness despite the reconstruction of the exercises. Uh, you know, the, that is done to support the diplomatic track, certainly, but all the while making sure that the preparedness is not uh, in any way undermined. But it doesn't help, certainly, that your relations with the United States are not as good as they once were. You're currently at odds over the defense cost sharing. The U.S. has rejected your offer of a 13 percent increase in spending and instead is demanding a five-fold increase. How do you want to come to an agreement and what happens if you don't? Difficult, I admit, uh, but you know this is an alliance uh, that's developed over 67 years. Uh, there have been difficult issues in the past that we've been able to work through. Um, you know, a lot allies have differences, and and I think the special uh, measures agreement this time is particularly difficult. Uh, but we are both determined to find an agreement that we both can agree to. Obviously, it will take more time and more effort, but we are. You know, I'm very confident that we will reach an agreement eventually. Donald Trump has said the following. Um, it's a question of whether South Korea will contribute toward the defense of their own nation. We are defending nations that are very wealthy. South Korea is a very wealthy nation. Does he have a point? We are increasingly wealthy, which is why our share of the defense, the stationing of the troops have have increased over the years. Initially, the initial agreement is that we will provide the land and the facilities and the U.S. will provide for the expenses of the troops stationing. Now, as Korea developed and became more wealthy, 
we have agreed to uh, a special measures agreement, which is which is the the title of this uh, uh, this agreement, and increasingly more uh, more of that share. Um, and, and with that share, that increase has to be incremental. It can't be. 30%, 50% over a one-year period. There is a methodology system. There is a budgetary system that our government has to follow. And in the end, this has to go through the National Assembly for approvals. So there are all these uh, uh, parameters that we as government needs to uh, meet while negotiating with the United States. And, and I think our partners across the table from the United States are fully aware of this. And as you're sorting those the, through those parameters, we have the U.S. president not missing one opportunity to say what a great relationship he has with the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and what a nice guy he is. Um, Trump has said the following, we fell in love. No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters. Are you concerned that Trump is speaking in such high terms about the dictator to the north and not about the democratically elected president of South Korea? I mean, you're longtime allies. Well, you keep saying concern. We're not concerned. I think the, the relations between our two governments at all levels, between the president, between myself and uh, the secretary of state, is very strong, very tight. And I think in particular during this time of the COVID-19 crisis, uh, the collaboration has been exemplary. So I'm not concerned. I think that that's President Trump's unique way of messaging. And it also indicates his clear... Um, desire to continue to engage at that level. The engagement with North Korea this time around has been driven very much by that top level political will, both on the side of the United States and also to a certain extent on the uh, part of our side as well. So, and it's very important to keep that high level political will going for the continued engagement. What other options you have if, 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 if that, um, uh, you know, if, if that alliance breaks down? I mean, have you become too reliant on the U.S nuclear shield that they provide? I am not at all concerned about I don't think that's a, that's a scenario that uh, we, we anticipate. I think we, the alliance is very strong. The U.S. is fully committed to this, uh, the security of the, the, current, uh, the South Korea and, and the, um, the extension of their, their nuclear shield. So I, I don't know where you get that, uh, the possibility of that happening. I don't see that possibility. Let's talk about China. Because in the meantime, China has been using the coronavirus crisis as an opportunity to assert itself in the region. There, there's been an arrest, uh, the arrest rather, of democracy activists in Hong Kong, military pressure being put on Taiwan and its neighbors in the South China Sea, even going so far as to sink a Vietnamese fishing vessel. It looks like China is using the coronavirus pandemic as a regional power grab while other major powers are, are busy at home. Um, surely that must raise some red flags for you. Well, China and the, we have our we had our difficult time um, in 2016-2017. Uh, post my president's visit in December 2017, I think we are largely recovering the close economic and, and people-to-people ties. As far as the Corona-19 virus is concerned, it first happened in China. Uh, and we were one of the first to be hit because we have lots of people traveling uh, from back and forth to China. And I think the collaboration on the COVID-19 has been, has been very good. We 
press for um, quick and prompt sharing of information. We underscore the importance of that, um, and we, we demonstrate that with our own actions, and, and we urge that on the part of China as well. We have economies under pressure right now amid this pandemic, citizens' health at stake. What do you think your part of the world will look like after this pandemic ends? I think post-coronavirus, the world will certainly be different from pre-COVID-19. I think all economies have been severely hit uh, by this. Uh, you know, we are rolling out domestic economic stimulus packages uh, for, for our strategic industries, for our small and medium businesses, for furloughed workers, for, for households. But that can only go to a certain extent. We are very dependent on the, the, um, our trade, our investment ties with overseas. So we very much hope that that also recovers. And we can't do that by ourselves. So I hope, do hope that our partners uh, will also see the self-interest in, in, you know, for, you know recovering uh, the global value chains, the, the trade and investments, the business trips. And, and I, I think there's two trends. I think, yes, there are tendencies of countries to become insular and, 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 and shutting of the doors and, and, uh, and parochial. But I think there is also an, an understanding that, and the virus has uh, made this so clear, that these challenges are cross-border. Uh, it doesn't stop at the border. Uh, you may close the border, but the virus still gets in. Um, and so there is an increasing call for global coordination at various fora, at the UN, at the WHO, at the G20. And we do hope that um, right. beyond the talk, uh, that the, there will be greater multilateral collaboration uh, in overcoming not just the, the health crisis, but also the socioeconomic crisis as well. South Korean Foreign Minister Kang Kyung-wha, thank you for joining us on Conflict Zone. Thank you.